Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Section 1 of The Gleam in the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Eileen. The Gleam in the North by D.K. Broster. Quote, He sent our lawful prince amongst us, and I followed him. End quote. Lawrence Oliphant the Younger of Gask. Quote, a brighter courage and a gentler disposition were never married together. End quote. Lord Clarendon of Sir Beville Grenville. To my friends north of Tweed. In all that concerns Dr. Archibald Cameron, and this story follows historical fact very closely, and its final scenes embody many of his actual words. Chapter 1. The Broken Claymore 1. And then, said the childish voice, the clans charged. But I expect you do not know what that means, Keithy. It means that they ran very fast against the English, waving their broadswords, and all with their dirks in their left hands, under the targe, and they were so fierce and so brave that they broke through the front line of English soldiers, which were in front, and if there had not been so many more English, and they well fed. Oh, but we were very hungry, and had marched all night. The little boy paused, leaving the sequel untold. But the pause itself told it from the pronoun into which he had dropped, from his absorbed, exalted air. He might almost have been himself in the lost battle of which he was telling the story this afternoon, among the highland heather, to a boy still younger. And, in fact, he was not relating to those small, inattentive ears any tale of old, unhappy, far-off things, nor of a battle long ago. Little more than six years had passed since these children's own father had lain badly wounded on the tragic moorland of Culloden, had indeed died there, but for the devotion of his foster brothers. And this concluded the storyteller, leaving the gap still unbridged, and this is the hilt of a broadsword that was used in the battle. He uncovered an object of a roundish shape, wrapped in a handkerchief, and lying on his knees. Her cousin Ian Stewart gave it to me last week, 
And now I will let you see it. Oh, you're not listening. You're not even looking, Keithy. The dark, pansy-like eyes of his little hearer were lifted to his. Yes, my was, he replied in his clear treble. Oh, but something runs so fast down my leg, he added apologetically. It comed out of the frug. Not much of a small three-year-old person could be seen, so deeply planted was it in the aforesaid heather. His brother Donald, on the contrary, was commandingly situated on a fallen pine stem. The sun of late September, striking low through the birch trees, gilded his childish hair, ripe corn which gleamed as no cornfield ever did. He was so well-grown and sturdy and that he might have passed for seven or eight, and though in reality a good deal younger, and one could almost have imagined the winged helm of a viking on those bright locks. But the little delicate face, surmounted by loose dark curls, which looked up at him from the fading heather, was that of a gently brooding angel. Like that small seraph of Carpaccio's, who bends so concernedly over his big lute. Between the two, tall, stately, and melancholy, sat Lueth, the great shaggy highland deerhound, and behind him was the glimmer of water. The historian on the log suddenly got up, gripping his claymore hilt tight. It was big and heavy, and the childish hand was lost inside the strong twining basketwork. Of the blade, and there remained but an inch or two. Oh, come along, Keithy. Obediently, the angel turned over, as small children do when they rise from the ground, took his brother's outstretched hand, and began to move away with him, lifting his little legs high to clear the tough heather stems. "'Not going home now, Donald?' he inquired after a moment, tiring, no doubt, of this prancing motion. "'We will go this way,' replied the elder boy, somewhat disingenuously, well aware that he had turned his back on the house of Ardroy, his home, and was making straight for Loch Nahollere, where the two were never allowed to go unaccompanied. I think that father's fishing here somewhere. 2. Conjecture or knowledge. Donald's statement was correct, though, as an excuse for theirs, his father's presence was scarcely sufficient, since nearly a quarter of a mile of water intervened between Ewan Cameron of Ardroy and his offspring. He could not even see his small sons, for he sat on the farther side of the tree-covered islet in the middle of the loch, a young auburn-haired giant with a determined mouth, patiently splicing the broken joint of a fishing rod. More than four years had elapsed since Ardroy had returned with his wife and his little son from exile after Culloden. As long as Lochiel, his proscribed chief, was alive, he had never contemplated such a return. But in those October days of 1748, when the noblest and most disinterested of all the gentlemen who had worn the white rose lay dying in Picardy of brain fever, or, more truly, of a broken heart. He had, in an interval of consciousness, laid that injunction on the kinsman who almost felt that with Lochiel's his own existence was closing, too. All his life Lochiel's word had been law to the young man. 
a wish uttered by those dying lips was a behest so sacred that no hesitation could stand in the way of carrying it out ewan resigned the commission which he bore in lochiel's own regiment in the french service and breathed once more the air of the hills of home and saw again the old grey house and the mountain-clasped loch which was even dearer but he knew that he would have to pay a price for his return and indeed he had come back to a life very different from that which had been his before the year seventeen forty five to one full of petty annoyances and restrictions if not of actual persecution he was not himself attainted and thereby exempted like some from the act of indemnity or he could not have returned at all but he came back to find his religion proscribed his arms taken from him and the wearing of his native dress made a penal offence which at its second commission might be punished with transportation the feudal jurisdiction of the chiefs was shattered for ever and now the english had studded the highlands with a series of military outposts and thence at great expenditure of shoe-leather patrolled all but the wildest glens it was a maimed existence a kind of exile at home and though indeed to a highlander with all a celt's inborn passion for his native land it had its compensations and though he was most happily married ewan cameron knew many bitter hours he was only thirty-three and looked less and he was a jacobite and fighter born yet both he and his wife believed that he was doing right in thus living quietly on his estate for he could thereby stand in some measure between his tenants and the pressure of authority and his two boys could grow up in the home of their forefathers and keith indeed had first opened his eyes at ardroy and even donald in england whither like other heroic jacobite wives in similar circumstances lady ardroy had journeyed from france for her confinement in order that the heir should not be born on foreign soil besides lochiel had counselled return moreover the disaster of culloden had by no means entirely quenched jacobite hopes and the prince would come again said the defeated among themselves and matters go better and next year or the year after ewan in france had shared those hopes but they were not so green now the treaty of aix-la-chapelle had rendered french aid a thing no more possible and indeed a jacobite claims had latterly meant to france merely a useful weapon with which to threaten her ancient foe across the channel once he who was the hope of scotland had been hunted day and night among these western hills and islands and the poorest had sheltered him without thought of consequences now on the wide continent of europe not a crowned head would receive him for fear of political complications more than three years ago and therefore poor outcast and disillusioned he who had been bunny prince charlie had vanished into a plotter's limbo very few knew his hiding places and not one highlander three my want to go home said little keith sighing the two children were now standing a few yards from the verge looking over the loch of the eagle 
where the fringing birches were beginning to yellow, and the quiet water was expecting the sunset. Donald took no notice of this plaint. His eyes were intently fixed on something up the red-brown slopes of Miaul Achauk on the far side. Was it a stag? Her father not here, began the smaller boy once more, rather wistfully. I'll go home to mother now, Donald. All in good time, said Master Donald in a lordly fashion. I'll sit down again, if you're tired. Not tired, retorted little Keith, but his mouth began to droop. I want to go home. Lueth gone. He tugged at the hand which held him. Oh, be quiet, exclaimed his brother impatiently, intent on the distant stag, if stag it were. He loosed his hold of Keith's hand, and putting down the claymore hilt, used both his own to shade his eyes, remembering the thrill, the rather awful thrill, of coming once upon an eight-pointer, which severe weather had brought down almost to the house. This object was certainly moving. Now a birch tree by the lockside blocked his view of it. Donald himself moved a little farther to the left to avoid the birch branches, almost as breathless as if he had really been stalking the beast. But in a minute or two he could see no further sign of it on the distant hillside, and came back to his actual surroundings to find that his small brother was no longer beside him, but had trotted out to the very brink of the loch in a place where Donald had always been told that the water was as deep as a kirk. Oh, Keith, come back at once, he shouted in dismay. Oh, you know that you're not to go there. And then he missed the claymore hilt, which he had laid down a yard or so away, and crying, Oh, how dare you take my sword, flung himself after the truant. But before he could reach it, the small figure had turned an exultant face. My God, yours toy! And then he had it no longer, for with all his childish might he had thrown it away from him into the water. And there was a delightful splash. It's away, announced Keithy, laughing gleefully. And Donald stood there arrested, his rosy face gone white as paper. For despite the small strength which had thrown the thing, the irreplaceable relic was indeed away. And since the lock was so deep there, and he could not swim. And then the hot highland blood came surging back to his heart, and, blind with a child's unthinking rage, he pounced on the malefactor. One furious push, and he had sent his three-year-old brother to join the Claymore Hilt in the place where Loch Nahollere was as deep as a kirk. A child's scream, and two screams, made you and Cameron throw down his rod and spring to his feet. In that stillness of the heart of the hills and over water, sounds travelled undimmed, and he had for a little time been well aware of childish voices at a distance, and had known them, too, for those of his own boys. But since it never occurred to him that the children were there unattended, he was not perturbed. He would row over to them presently. Oh, but now... He ran across the islet in a panic. The screams prolonged themselves. He heard himself called. Oh, God, what had happened? And then he saw. 
on the shore of the loch, looking very small against the great old pines behind him, stood a boy rigid with terror, screaming in Gallic and English for his father, for Angus, for anyone. And in the water not far from shore was something struggling, rising and disappearing. Ardroyd jumped into the small boat in which he had rowed to the island, and began to pull like a madman towards the shore, his head over his shoulders the while. And thus he saw that there was something else in the loch also, a long, narrow head forging quickly through the water towards the scene of the accident, that place near land, indeed, but deep enough to drown twenty children. Oh, Lewis, bless him, thought the young man, has gone in from a distance. Before he had rowed many more strokes, he himself dropped his oars, and, without pausing even to strip off his coat, had plunged in himself. Even then, strong swimmer though he was, he doubted if he should be in time. The dog had got there first, and had seized the child, but was more occupied in trying to get him bodily out of the loch than in keeping his head above water. But with a stroke or two more, Ardroy was up to them, only praying that he should not have to struggle with Lueth for possession. Mercifully, the deerhound obeyed his command to let go, and in another moment Ewan Cameron was scrambling out of Loch Nahorre, himself fully as terrified as either of the children, but clutching to him a sodden, choking little bundle, incoherent between fright and loch water. 5. The old house of Ardroy stood some quarter of a mile from the loch, rather strangely turning its back upon it, but since it thus looked south, capturing the sun for a good part of the day, even in midwinter. Comfortable and unpretentious, it had already seen some hundred and thirty autumns, had sometimes rung with youthful voices, and sometimes lacked them. Now, once again it had a nursery, where, at this moment, by a fire of peat and logs, a rosy-cheeked highland girl was making preparations for washing two small persons who, after scrambling about all afternoon in the heather and bracken, would probably stand in need of soap and water. And presently their mother came through the open door, dark-haired like her younger son, slight, oval-faced, almost a girl still, for she was but in her late twenties, and combining a kind of effortless dignity with a girlish sweetness of expression. How are the children not home yet, Morag? she asked, using the Gaelic, and Morag answered her lady that surely they would not be long now, and it might be that the laird himself was bringing them, for he had gone up past the place where they were playing. Ah, there they are, said Lady Ardroy, for she had heard her husband's step in the hall, and as she left the room his soft highland voice floated up to her, even softer than its wont, for it seemed to be comforting someone. She looked over the stairs and gave an exclamation. Ardroyd was dripping wet, all save his head, and in his arms, clinging to him with an occasional sob, was a pitiful little object with dark hair streaked over its face. Ewan looked up at the same moment and saw her. All is well, and dear heart, he said quickly. Keithy has had a wee mishap, but here he is, safe and sound. He ran up the stairs and put the small, wet thing, wrapped in Donald's coat, into its mother's arms. Yes, the lock, he fell in, 
No harm, I think, only frightened. Lueth got to him first. I was on the island. Allison gave a gasp. She had seized her youngest, almost as if she were rescuing him from the rescuer, and was covering the damp, forlorn little face with kisses. Oh, darling, and darling, you're safe with mother now. Oh, he must be put into a hot bath at once. She ran with them into the nursery. Was the water heated, Morag? Ardroy, wet and gigantic, followed her in, and behind came the mute and coatless Donald, who stood for a moment looking at the bustle, and then went and seated himself, very silent, on the window seat. Close to the fire his mother was getting the little sodden garments off Keith. Morag was pouring out the hot water. His father, who could be of no use here, was contributing a damp patch to the nursery floor. But Keithy had ceased to cry now, and as he was put into the bath he even patted the water and raised a tiny splash. And then, after he was immersed, he said to his mother, raising those irresistible velvety eyes, "'How naughty, Donald, to put Keithy into the water!' "'Oh, my darling, my peery winky, you must not say things like that!' exclaimed Alison, rather shocked. Oh, "'There, we'll forget all about falling in, and you're safe home now.' "'Oh, towel, Morag. "'And Donald pushed Keithy into the water,' repeated the little naked boy from the folds of the towel. "'And again, with deeper reprobation in his tone. "'Naughty Donald!' Ardroy, anxiously and helplessly watching these operations, knelt down on one knee beside his wife and son, and said gently, "'Donald should not have gone near the loch. That was naughty of him. But you must not tell a lie about it, Keithy.' "'Who did put my in?' reiterated the child, now wrapped in a warm blanket, and looking not unlike a chrysalis. "'Who did? Who did?' Yes, I did, said a sudden voice from behind. It's not a lie. I did push him in. And with that, Donald advanced from the window. His kneeling father turned so suddenly that he almost overbalanced. You, you pushed your little brother into Loch Nahollere, he repeated in a tone of utter incredulity, while Alison clutched the chrysalis to her looking like a mother in a picture of the Massacre of the Innocents. "'You pushed him in? Deliberately?' repeated Ardroy once more, and getting to his feet. And the child faced him, fearless but not defiant, his golden head erect, his hands clenched at his sides. He threw my broadsword hilt in. It was wicked of him. Wicked! The voice shook a moment but he's not telling a lie. For a second Ewan gazed, horrified, at his wife, and then at his heir. Oh, I think you had better go downstairs to my room, Donald. When I've changed my clothes, I will come and talk to you there. You'll be getting Keithy to bed as soon as possible, I suppose, Mukri. Donald, Donald, murmured his mother, looking at the culprit with all the sorrow and surprise of the world in her eyes. Naughty Donald, 
chanted his brother with a flushed face. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Oh, a great deal more than naughty, thought the young father to himself as he went to his bedroom and stripped off his wet clothes. Oh, good God, how came he to do such a thing? In the hall, Lewis, wet too, rose and poked a cold nose into his hand. Yes, said his master, you did your duty, good dog. But my boy, how could he have acted so? He put that question squarely to the delinquent, who was waiting for him in the little room where Ardroy kept his books and rods and saw his tenantry. Donald's blue eyes met his, frankly. I suppose because I was angry with Keithy for being so wicked, he replied. Ewan sat down, and, afraid lest his horror and surprise should make him too stern, drew the child towards him. But surely, Donald, you're sorry and ashamed now. Think what might have happened. The fair head drooped a little, but not, evidently, in penitence. I am not sorry, father, that I threw him in. He was wicked. He took my claymore hilt that was used at Culloden and threw it in. So it was right that he should be punished. Oh, great heavens, exclaimed his parent, loosing his hold of him at this pronouncement. And don't you think that your little brother is of more importance than a bit of an old broadsword? To which Donald made the devastating reply. No, father, for I don't suppose that I can ever have the hilt again, and because the lock is so deep there. But some day I may have another brother. Morag said so. Words were smitten from the laird of Ardroy, and for a moment he gazed speechless at this example of infantile logic. Donald, he said at last, I begin to think you're a wee thing fay. Go to bed now. I'll speak to you again in the morning. If you're going to punish me, father, said the boy, standing up very straight and looking up at him with his clear, undaunted eyes, I would leave for you did it now. Oh, I'm afraid you cannot have everything you wish, my son, replied Ardroy rather grimly. Go to your bed now and pray to God to show you how wicked you've been. I'd rather you felt that than thought about getting your punishment over quickly. Indeed, if the sight of your little brother Albert drowning through your act was not punishment. He stopped, for he remembered that Donald had at least screamed for help. But the executor of vengeance stuck to his guns. It was Keithy who deserved punishment, he murmured, but not very steadily. Oh, the child's bewitched, said Ewan to himself, staring at him. And then he put a hand on his shoulder. Oh, come now, he said in a softer tone. And get you to bed and think of what you would be feeling like now if Keithy had been drowned, as he certainly would have been had I not happened to be on the island, for Lewis could not have scrambled right out with him. And you see what disobedience leads to, for if you had not taken Keithy to the lock, he could not have thrown your hilt into it. And this argument appeared to impress the logical mind of his son. Yes, father, he said in a more subdued tone. Yes, I'm sorry that I was disobedient. 
and though Ardroy at once divined a not very satisfactory reason for this admission, he wisely did not probe into it. Go to bed now. Am I to have any supper? Her supper is of small account, replied Ewan rather absently, gazing at the golden-haired criminal. Yes, I mean no, no supper. On that point, at least, he was able to come to a decision. And Donald seemed satisfied with its justice. He left the room gravely, without saying good night. Later, bending with Alison over the little bed where Donald's victim was already nearly asleep, Ewan repeated his opinion that their elder son was Fay. And what are we to do with him? He seems to think that he was completely justified in what he did. It is... It is unnatural. And he looked so perturbed that his wife smothered her own no less acute feelings on the subject and said, consolingly, Oh, he must at least have done it in a blind rage, dear love. Oh, I hope so, indeed. But he's so uncannily calm and judicial over it now. Oh, I don't know what to do. Ought I to thrash him? Oh, you could not murmured Lady Ardroy. Like many large, strong men, Ewan Cameron was extraordinarily gentle with creatures that were neither. No, I will try whether I cannot make Donald see what a dreadful thing he did. Oh, Ewan, if you'd not been there. Her lips trembled, and going down on her knees, she laid her head against the little mound under the bedclothes. Keithy half woke up and bestowed a sleepy smile upon her. In common with his impenitent brother, he seemed to have recovered from his fright. It was the parents of both in whose cup the dregs of the adventure were left, very disturbing to the palate. End of section one. Section 2 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 2 Lieutenant Hector Grant of the Regiment d'Albany. Alison retired early that evening to keep an eye upon her youngest born after his immersion. But Ardroy did not go to bed at his usual hour. Indeed, he remained far beyond it, and half-past eleven found him pacing up and down the big living-room, his hands behind his back. Now and again, as he turned in his perambulation, there was to be seen the merest trace of his memento of Culloden, and the limp which, when he was really tired, was clearly to be recognized for one. Deeply shocked at this fratricidal tendency in his eldest son, and puzzled how best to deal with it, the young man could not get his mind off the incident. When he looked at Lueth, lying on the deerskin in front of the hearth, nose on paws, and eyes following his every movement, he felt almost ashamed that the dog should have witnessed the crime which made Donald, at his early age, a potential Cain. At last, in desperation, he went to his own sanctum, seized an account-book, and bore it back to the fireside. Anything to take his mind off the afternoon's affair, 
were it only the ever-recurring difficulty of making income and expenditure tally. For Ewan had never received, had never wished to receive, a single louis of the French gold buried at Loch Arkig, and though it had been conveyed into Cameron territory by a Cameron, and though another Cameron, and together with the proscribed chief of the Macphersons, still in hiding in Badenoch, was agent for its clandestine distribution among the Jacobite clans. Ardroy had told Dr. Archibald Cameron, Lochiel's brother, and his own cousin and intimate, who had been the hero of its transportation and interment, that he did not need any subsidy, and John Cameron of Fassifern, the other brother, representative in the highlands of the dead chief's family, now in France, was only too relieved not to have another applicant clamouring for a dole from that fast dwindling hoard. And Ardroy himself was glad of his abstention, for by this autumn of 1752 it was becoming clear that the money landed from the French ships just after the Battle of Culloden, too late to be of any use in the campaign, had now succeeded in setting clan against clan, and kinsmen against kinsmen, in raising jealousies, and even, for there were ugly rumours abroad, in breeding informers. Yes, it was dragon's teeth, after all, which Archibald Cameron had with such devotion sowed on Loch Arcake's side. Seed which had sprung up, not in the guise of armed men to fight for the Stuarts, but in that of a crop of deadly poison. Even Ewan did not suspect how deadly. In the midst of the young laird's rather absent-minded calculations, Lewis suddenly raised his head and growled. Ardroyd laid down his papers and listened, but he could hear nothing. The deerhound growled again on a deep, threatening note, and rose, the hair along his neck stiffening. His eyes were fixed on the windows. Oh, quiet, said his master, and, rising also, went to one, drew aside the curtains, and looked out. He could see nothing, and yet he, too, felt that someone was there. With Lueth still growling at his heels, he left the room, opened the door of the house, and, going through the porch, stood outside. The cool, spacious calm of the highland night enveloped him in an instant. He saw Aldebaran, brilliant in the southeast, between two dark continents of cloud. Then footsteps came out of the shadows, and a slim, cloaked figure slipped quickly past him into the porch. Est-il permis d'entrer, mon cher? it asked, low and half laughing. Oh, down, Lewis. It's a friend, a good dog. Who is it? had been surprised out of Ewan in the same moment as he turned. Oh, sure, you know that, said the voice. Oh, but shut your door, Ardroy. The intruder was in the parlour now, in the lamplight, and as Ewan hastened after him, he flung his hat upon the table and advanced with both hands outstretched. A dark, slender, clear-featured young man of about five and twenty, wearing powder and a long green roquelaure. Oh, Hector, by all the powers, exclaimed the involuntary host. What? What brings me here? I'll tell you in a moment. How does Alison and yourself and the bairns? Oh, faith, I'll hardly be knowing those last again, I expect. 
Allison is very well, replied Ewan to Allison's only brother. We are all well, thank God. And Allison will be vastly pleased to see you, as I am. Oh, but why this unannounced visit, my dear Hector? And why, if I may ask, this mysterious entrance by night? It is mere chance that I'm not a bed like the rest of the house. Oh, I had my reasons, said Hector Grant cheerfully. Nay, I'm no deserter. He was an officer in French service. But I thought it wiser to slip in unnoticed, if I could. I'll tell you why, anon, when I'm less... You'll pardon me for mentioning it. Less sharp-set. Ah, my sorrow, exclaimed his host. Oh, forgive me. I'll have food before you in a moment. Sit down, Echen, and I will tell Alison of your arrival. Hector caught at him. Oh, don't rouse her now. The morn will be time enough, and I'm wanting a few words with you first. He threw off his rock log. May I not come and forage with you, as we did? Where was it? At Manchester, I think, in the forty-five. Come on, then, said his brother-in-law, a hand on his shoulder, and they each lit a candle and went, rather like schoolboys, to rifle the larder. And presently Ardor was sitting at the table, watching his midnight visitor give a very good account of a venison pie. This slim, vivacious, distinctly attractive young man might almost have passed for a Frenchman, and indeed his long residence in France had given him not a few Gallic tricks of gesture and expression. For Hector Grant had lived abroad since he entered French service at the age of sixteen. And before that, too. Only during the fateful year of the Rising had he spent any length of time in Britain. It was, indeed, his French commission which had saved him from the scaffold, for he had been one of the ill-fated garrison of Carlisle. A venison! Ah, good to be back where one can have a shot at a deer again, he presently observed, with his mouthful. Oh, I envy you, mon frère. Oh, you need not, answered Ewan. Oh, you forget that I cannot have a shot at one. I have no means of doing it. No firearms. No, not the smallest fowling piece. We have to snare our deer, or use dogs. Ah, c'est vrai, I had forgotten. But I cannot think how you submit to such a deprivation. Oh, submit, asked Ardroy, rather bitterly. There is no choice. Every Highland gentleman of our party has to submit to it, unless he has qualified to the English government. And you still have not done that. Ewan flushed. Oh, my dear Hector, how should I take an oath of fidelity to the Elector of Hanover? Do you think I am become a Whig? Of faith, no, unless you have mightily changed since we marched into England together seven years ago come Hallowmas. But, Eowan, and besides the arms which you have been forced to give up, and there will surely be some which you have contrived to keep back, as has always been done in the past, when these distasteful measures were imposed upon us. And Ewan's face darkened. Well, the English were cleverer this time. After the Act of Twenty-Five, no one was made to call down a curse upon himself, his kin, and all his undertakings, and to invoke the death of a coward and burial without a prayer in a strange land, if he broke his oath that he had not, and never would have in his possession any sword or pistol or arm whatsoever, nor would use any part of his highland garb. Hector whistled. 
Ma foi, you subscribe to that. I had to, answered Ewan shortly. Oh, I never realized that when I was here two years ago, but then my visit was so short. I did indeed know that the wearing of the tartan in any form was forbidden. That, observed Ardroy, bears harder in a way upon the poor folk than upon us gentry. I had other clothes. If not, I could buy some. But the crofters, what else had they but their homespun plaids and filibecks and gowns? Is it any wonder that they resorted at first to all sorts of shifts and evasions of the law, and do still, wearing a piece of plain cloth merely wrapped around the waist, sewing up the kilt in the hope that it may pass for breeches and the like? But that is not the only side of it, said the young Franco Scot rather impatiently. You're eloquent on the money hardship inflicted on the country folk, but surely you do not yourself relish being deprived by an enemy of the garb which has always marked us as a brace. He was young, impetuous, not remarkable for tact, and his brother-in-law had turned his head away without reply, so that Hector Grant could not see the gleam which had come into those very blue eyes of his, nor guess the passionate resentment which was always smouldering in Ardroy's heart over a measure which, in common with the poorest Highlander, he loathed with every fibre of his being, and which he would long ago have disobeyed, but for the suffering which the consequences to him would have brought upon his wife and children. I should have thought, young Grant was going on, when Ewan broke in, turning round and reaching for the claret. Have some more wine, Hector. Now, am I really not to wake Alison to tell her that you're here? Hector finished his glass. No, let her sleep, the darling. I'll have plenty of time to talk with her. That is, if you will keep me a few days, Ardry. Oh, my dear brother, why ask? My house is yours, said Ewan warmly. Hector made a little gesture of thanks. I'll engage not to wear the tartan, he said, smiling, nor my uniform, in case the English redcoats should mislike it. That is kind of you, and, as I guess, you could not, having neither with you. A moi, said Hector to this, like a fencer acknowledging a hit. I'll see about a bed for you now. There is one always ready for a guest, I believe. Again the young officer stayed him. It is not much past midnight yet. And I want a word with you, Ewan, a serious word. I'd liefer indeed say it before I sleep under your roof, I think more especially since, for your family's sake, you become prudent. Ardroy's face clouded a little. He hated the very name of prudence, and the thing too, but it was true that he had to exercise it. Say on, he responded rather briefly. Eh bien, began Hector, his eyes on the empty wine glass which he was twirling in his fingers, Although it is quite true that I am come hither to see my sister and her children, there is someone else whom I am very anxious to have speech with. And who's that? asked Ewan a trifle uneasily. Who oh, you not come, I hope, on any business connected with the Loch Archic treasure? Tis not Cluny Macpherson whom you wish to see. Hector looked at him and smiled. Oh, I hope to see Cluny later, and though not about the treasure. And just now it's a man much easier to come at, a man in Lochaber that I'm seeking. Yourself, in short. 
Ewan raised his eyebrows. You have not far to go, then. Oh, I am not so sure of that, responded young Grant cryptically. He paused a moment. Ewan, have you ever heard of Alexander Murray? The brother of Lord Murray of Elibank, do you mean? Yes. What of him? And Finlay McFair of Glenshean. Young Glenshean. And did you ever meet him in Paris? No, I've never met him. Non part. Now listen, and I will tell you a great secret. He drew closer, and into Ardroy's ears he poured the somewhat vague but, to Ewan, alarming details of a plot to surprise St. James's Palace and kidnap the whole English royal family, by means, chiefly, of young officers like himself in the French service, aided by Highlanders, of whom five hundred, he alleged, could be raised in London. The German elector, his remaining son and his grandsons, once out of the way, England would acquiesce with joy in the fête accompli, and welcome her true prince, who was to be ready on the coast. The Highlands, of course, must be prepared to rise, and quickly, for Hector believed that an early date in November had been fixed for the attempt. The Scots whom he had just mentioned were in the plot, and the Earl Marischal knew of it. And Hector himself, having already resolved to spend his leave in visiting his sister, had also, it was evident, conceived the idea of offering Ardroy a share in the enterprise, apparently hoping to induce him to go to London and enroll himself among the putative five hundred Highlanders. But before we discuss that, he finished, and tell me what you think of the whole notion of this coup de main. Was it not excellent, and just what we ought to have carried out long ago, had we been wise? And he leant back with a satisfied air, as if he had no fear of the reply. But there was no answering light on the clear, strong face opposite him. Cameron of Ardroy was looking very grave. "'You want to know what I think?' he asked slowly. "'Well, first I think that the scheme is mad and could not succeed, and secondly that it is unworthy and does not deserve to.' Hector sat up in his chair. Hey, qu'est-ce que tu me chantes là?' he cried with a frown. I'll "'Say that again!' Ewan did not comply. Instead, he went on very earnestly. "'You surely do not hold with assassination, Hector. But no doubt you do not see the affair in that light. You spoke of kidnapping, I think. Oh, for heaven's sake! Have nothing to do with a plot of that kind, which the prince would never soil his hands with.' "'You'll become very squeamish on a sudden,' observed his visitor, surveying him with an air at once crestfallen and deeply resentful.' and somewhat behind the times, too, since you retired to these parts. The prince not only knows, but approves of the plan. His brother-in-law's face expressed complete scepticism. Oh, I think your enthusiasm misleads you, Hector. His Royal Highness has always refused to countenance schemes of the kind. You are a trifle out of date, as I was forced to observe to you, my dear Ewan. I suppose His Royal Highness may change his mind. And, after all, it is five years or so since you have been able to know anything of his opinions. As it happens, it is in connection with this enterprise that he is sending Macfair of Loch Dorney and Dr. Cameron to Scotland. They are to work the clans, meanwhile, 
so that when the blow is struck in London by those responsible. But by now, Ewan was interrupting him. Archie? Archie Cameron is connected with this plot. I'm sorry to appear to doubt you, Hector, but since at this point we had best be frank, I don't believe it. Hector's lips were compressed, his eyes glinting. He seemed to be making an effort to keep his temper. Oh, he'll tell you differently, and parbleu, when you meet him. And when I meet him, he's not in Scotland. Oh, he is, by this time. And I suppose, since he's your cousin, and you've always been intimate with him, that he'll come here, and mayhap you will accord him a more courteous welcome than you have me. He pushed back his chair and got up. Ewan did the same. Why ask your pardon if I was uncivil, he said with some stiffness. But I cannot be courteous over a scheme so ill-judged and so repugnant. Moreover, Archibald Cameron will not come here. When he was over in 49, on the business of the Loch Arcade Gold, he purposely kept away from Ardry. Oh, purposely? Why? Oh, aye, lest he should compromise you, I suppose. Something of the sort, answered Ewan, without flinching. Oh, yes, that's your chief preoccupation now, I see, flared out Hector, hot as ginger. Oh, it were much better I'd not come here either, but I'll go at once, lest I should commit that unpardonable sin. Oh, Hector, Hector, do not be so hasty, cried Ewan, angry enough himself, but still able to control his tongue. You asked me what I thought. I told you. Give me your cloak and sit down again. Let's leave this business till the morning, and we'll talk of it again then. No, indeed we will not, retorted the young plotter defiantly. I'll find some other roof to shelter me tonight, some humbler dwelling where the white rose is still cherished. It grows no longer at Ardroy. I see that very plainly. He flung the cloak round him with a swing. I'll bid you good night, Monsieur mon beau-frère. Ewan had put his hands behind him. One was gripping the wrist of the other. He had turned a little pale. You can say what you please to me in this house, he answered between his teeth, for you know that I cannot touch you. But if you still feel minded to repeat that about the white rose to me tomorrow, somewhere off my land. Oh, the white rose, broke in a gentle voice from the doorway. Who is speaking of... Oh, Hector! It was Lady Ardroy, in her night shift with a shawl about her. Both men stood looking at her and wondering how much she had heard. Oh, Hector, dear brother, what a surprise! She ran across the big room to him. Oh, take off your cloak. How delightful is this! With the words, she threw her arms round his neck and kissed him warmly. But there must have been something amiss in her brother's answering salute, as in her husband's silence. And what is troubling you? she asked, looking from one to the other, her hand still on Hector's shoulder. Oh, is anything wrong? Is there ill news? Neither of the men answered her for a moment. Oh, Ewan considers it ill, said Hector at last, curtly. But it does not touch him, nor you, my dear. So I'll say good night. I must be going on my way. Going on your way? Tonight? 
and there was almost stupefaction in his sister's tone. But it is long past midnight, and you cannot go, Hector. And where are you bound at such an hour? Ewan, make him bide here. Hector must please himself, replied her husband coldly. But, naturally, I have no desire that he should continue his journey before morning. Alison gazed at him in dismay. Highland hospitality, and to a kinsman, offered in so half-hearted a fashion. Oh, surely, you've not been differing about anything. They had always been such good friends in the past. Again, neither of them answered her at once, but they both looked a trifle like children, detected in wrongdoing. Oh, you'd better go back to bed, my heart, said Ewan gently. And did you come down because you heard voices? Oh, I came, said Alison, her eyes suddenly clouding. Oh, because of Keithy. Oh, I don't know, but I fear he may be going to be ill. Oh, you see, I'd best go, said her brother instantly, in a softer tone. If you have a child ill. Oh, but that is neither here nor there, replied Alison. Oh, Hector, stay, stay. Of course, the young soldier wanted to stay. But, having announced in so fiery a manner that he was going, and having undeniably insulted the master of the house, how could he with dignity remain, unless that master begged him to? And that, Ardroy, evidently, was not minded to do. If Hector wishes to please you, Alison, he will no doubt bide here the night, was all the olive branch that he tendered but I gather that he fears he will compromise us by his presence. If you can persuade him that his fear is groundless, pray do so. No, said Hector, not to you and but to Alison. No, best have no more words about it. It were wiser I did not sleep here tonight. I'll come on my return, or perhaps tomorrow, he added, melted by his sister's appealing face. I'll find a shelter, never fear. But things have changed somewhat of late in the Highlands. With which mysterious words he kissed Alison again, flung his cloak once more about him, and made for the door. Lady Ardroyd followed him a little way, and distressed and puzzled, and then stopped. Half her heart, no doubt, was upstairs. But Ewan left the room after the young officer, and found him already opening the front door. Do me the justice to admit that I'm not turning you out, said Ardroy rather sternly. It is your own doing, and the house is open to you tonight, and for as long afterwards as you wish, if you apologize. I'll return when you apologize for calling me an assassin, retorted Hector over his shoulder. Oh, you know I never called you so. Hector, I hate your going off in anger in this fashion at dead of night. And how am I to know that you will not stumble into some ill affair or other with the redcoats or with broken men? Hector gave an unsteady laugh. If I do, you may be sure I shall not risk compromising you by asking for your assistance. Sleep quietly. And, losing that last arrow, he was lost in the darkness out of which he had come. Ardroy stood on the edge of that darkness for a moment, swallowing down the anger which fought with his concern, for he himself had a temper as hot as Hector's own, and though it was more difficult to rouse. 
Hector's last thrust was childish, but his previous stab about the white rose had gone deep. Did not Ewan himself sometimes lie awake at night, contrasting past and present? Yet he knew well that the root of that flower was not dead at Ardroy, though scarce a blossom might show on it. It was not dead, else one had not so felt at every turn of daily life both the ghost of its wistful fragrance and the sting of its perennial thorns. He went back with bent head to find Alison saying in great distress, Oh, dearest, what has happened between you and Hector? And Keithy is feverish. I'm so afraid lest the cold water and the exposure. For, you know, he's not very strong. Ewan put his arm round her. Oh, please, God, tis only a fever of cold he's taken. As for Hector, yes, I will tell you about it. He'll think better of it, I dare say, foolish boy, in the morning. He put out the lights on the improvised supper table. They went upstairs, and soon there was no sound in the dark room but an occasional sigh from the deer hound stretched out in front of the dying fire. End of section two. Section three of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter three. A French song by Lochtrig. By three o'clock next afternoon, Ewan Cameron was riding fast to Maryborough to fetch a doctor. Little Keith was really ill and it was with a sickening pang at his own heart that Ardroy had tried to comfort the now extremely penitent Donald, whom he had found weeping bitterly, because Keithy, flushed and panting, had refused the offer of some expiatory treasure or other, had indeed beaten him off pettishly when he attempted to put it into the hot little hand. Ardroy had to try to comfort himself, too, as he went along Loch Lochy banks, where the incomparable tints of the northern autumn were lighting their first fires in beech and bracken. Her children had fever so easily. It might signify nothing, old Marsali had said. And for himself, he had so little experience that he did not know. But Alison, he could see, was terribly anxious. He wished that his aunt, Miss Margaret Cameron, who had brought him up and still lived with him, were not away visiting. She could have borne Alison company on this dark day. He wished that he himself could have stayed at home and sent a gilly for the doctor, but even one who spoke English might get involved in some difficulty with the military at Fort William and the message never be delivered. It was safer to go himself. There was also last night's unfortunate business with his brother-in-law to perturb him. High-spirited and impulsive as he was, Hector might repent and come back in a day or two, if only for his sister's sake. Ewan devoutly hoped that he would. And for that same sister's sake he would forgive the young man his wounding words. It was worse to reflect that Hector had evidently mixed himself up in some way with this mad reprehensible plot against the elector. And he had averred that Archibald Cameron, of all men, had come, or was coming, to Scotland on the same enterprise. 
Ewan involuntarily tightened his reins. That he did not believe. His respect and affection for Archibald Cameron were scarcely less than those he had borne his elder brother Lochiel himself. Archie had probably come over again to confer with Cluny Macpherson about that accursed Loch Arche gold, very likely in order to take some of it back to France with him. A risky business, as always, but a perfectly justifiable one. It was true, as Ewan had told Hector, that Archie purposely avoided coming to Ardroy, though it lay not far from the shores of Loch Arkig. Yet, if Dr. Cameron really were in Scotland again, Ewan hoped that they should meet somehow. He had not seen his cousin for nearly three years. On the other hand, if Archie had come over to work in any way for the cause in the Highlands, and there was certainly a good deal of ferment here at present, and a proportionately good chance of fishing in troubled waters. There were ceaseless annoyances of one kind or another. There were the evictions of Jacobite tenants in favour of Whig. Above all, there was this black business of the Appin murder trial soon to open at Inverary, the Campbell stronghold, which everyone knew would end in the condemnation of an innocent man by the Campbell jury, because the victim of the outrage had been a Campbell. Yes, it might be fruitful soil, but who was to organize a new rising? And still more, who was to lead it? There was only one man whom the broken, often jealous clans would follow, and he was far away. And some whispered that he was broken, too. Although he was not well mounted, for a good horse was a luxury which he could not afford himself nowadays, Ardroy, thus occupied in mind, found himself crossing the Spean, almost before he realized it, on that bridge of General Wade's erection, which had been the scene of the first Jacobite exploit in the Rising, and of his own daring escape in the summer of forty-six. But he hardly gave a thought to either today. And, in order to examine one of his horse's legs, he pulled up at the change-house on the farther side, without reflecting that it was the very spot where, six years ago, he had been made to halt, a prisoner with his feet tied together under a sorrel's belly. While he was feeling the leg, suspecting incipient lameness, the keeper of the change-house came out. Not a Cameron now, but a Campbell protégé, yet a decent fellow enough. Though, on the winning side, he too was debarred from the use of the tartan, which was some consolation to a man on the losing. A good day to you, Ardroy, he said, recognizing the stooping rider. You'll be for Maryborough the day. Has the horse gone lame on you, then? Oh, hardly that yet, answered Ewan, but I fear me there's a strain or something of the sort. Yes, I'm going to Maryborough to fetch Dr. Kincaid. Can I do aught for you there, MacNichol? There, you'll not find the doctor at Maryborough, observed the other. He's away up Loch Traigside the day. Loch Traig, exclaimed Ewan, and dismayed. How do you know that man? And are you very sure of it? MacNichol was very sure. His own wife was ill. The doctor had visited her that same morning and instead of returning to Maryborough had departed along the south bank of the Spean, the only practicable way, for a lonely farm on Loch Trig. 
it was of no use waiting at the change house for his return, since he would naturally go back to Maryborough, along the shorter road, by Correquilly and Lianacon. There was nothing then to be done but ride after him. McNichol did not know how far along Loch Trig was the farm to which the doctor had gone, but he did know that the latter had said its occupant was very ill, and that he might be obliged to spend the night there. Ewan's heart sank lower and lower. It would be getting dusk by the time that he had covered the twelve or fourteen miles to the nearer end of that desolate loch. Suppose he somehow missed the doctor, or suppose the latter either could not or would not start back for Ardroy so late. Yet, at least, it would be better than nothing to have speech with him and to learn what was the proper treatment for that little coughing, shivering, bright-cheeked thing at home. So he went by Spian's side, where it hurried in its gorges, where it swirled in wide pools, by the dangerous ford at Inch, past the falls where it hurtled itself to a destruction which it never met. He rode between it and the long heights of Bain Klinik, and finally turned south with the lessening river itself. And, after a while, there opened before him a narrow, steel-coloured trough of loneliness and menace, imprisoned between unfriendly heights, Loch Trig. On its eastern side, Knoch Gerak reared himself starkly. On the other, Stub Quera and Essenvoir, even loftier, shut it in, kinsmen of Ben Nevis both. The track went low by the shore under Knoch Gerak, for there was no place for it on his steep flanks. As there was no habitation anywhere within sight, Ewan concluded that the farm to which Dr. Kincaid had gone was probably at Loch Craig Head, at the farther end of the lake, where the mountains relaxed their grip. Another five or six miles. He went on. The livid surface of the water by which he rode was not ruffled today by any wind. A heavy, sinister silence lay upon it, as on the dark, brooding heights which hemmed it about. One was shut in between them with that malevolent water. It hardly seemed surprising that after a mile and a half of its company, Ewan's horse definitely went lame. The strain which he feared had developed, and no wonder. But he could not spare the time to lead him. He must push on at all costs. The halting beast had carried him but a little way farther, before he was aware of distant sounds, like, yes, they were snatches of song. And soon he saw coming towards him through the September dusk, the indistinct figure of a man walking with the uncertain gait of one who has been looking upon the wine cup. And Ewan, thinking, how oh, that poor fool will either spend the night by the roadside or fall into the loch, pulled up his horse to a walk, for the drunkard was staggering first to one side of the narrow road and then to the other, and he feared to knock him down. As he did so, he recognized the air which the reveller was singing. But the words which belonged to that tune were neither Gaelic, Scots, nor English, so how should they be sung here, by one of the loneliest locks in the highlands. What was a Frenchman doing here, singing Malbrook? Quittez vos sang the voice, coming nearer, 
Mi gontu, mi gontu, mi gontene, ki te vos abihus, e vos atambrusi. Knoch, dirac, tossed the words mockingly to the other warder of Lochtreg, and Ewan jumped off his horse. It was not, perhaps, after all, a Frenchman born who was singing that song in so lamentable and ragged a fashion along this lonely track to nowhere. The lurching figure was already nearly up to him, and now the singer seemed to become aware of the man and the horse in his path, for he stopped in the middle of the refrain. Laissez-moi passer, s'il vous plaît, he muttered indistinctly, and tried to steady himself. He was hatless, and wore a green roquelaure. And Ewan dropped his horse's bridle, and seized him by the arm. Oh, Hector, what in the name of the good being are you doing here, in this state? Out of a very white face, Hector Grant's eyes stared at him totally without recognition. Let me pass, if you please, he said again, but in English this time. You're not fit to be abroad, said Ewan in disgust. The revelation that Hector could ever be as drunk as this came as a shock. He had always thought him a temperate youth, if excitable. But it was true that he had seen nothing of him for the past two years. Where have you been? What, in God's name, have you been doing? The young officer of the Regiment d'Albany did indeed cut a sorry figure. His waistcoat hung open, his powdered hair was disordered and streaked with wet, and there was mud on his breeches as well as on his boots. Now answer me, said Ewan sternly, giving him a little shake. I'm in haste. Oh, so am I, replied Hector, still more thickly. Oh, let me pass, I say, whoever you are. Let me pass, or I'll make you. Don't you even know me? demanded his brother-in-law indignantly. No, and have no wish to. Oh, God, my head! And, Ardroy having removed his grasp, the reveller reeled backwards against the horse, putting both hands to his brow. Oh, you had best sit down for a moment, counselled Ewan dryly, and with an arm round him guided him to the side of the path. Hector must be pretty far gone, if he really did not know him, for it was still quite light enough for recognition. The best way to sober him would be to take him to the nearest burn, tumbling down across the track, and dip his fuddled head into it. But Ewan stood looking down at him in mingled disgust and perplexity, for now Hector had laid that head upon his knees and was groaning aloud. As he sat hunched there, the back of that same head was presented to Ardroy's unsympathetic gaze. Just above the black ribbon which tied Hector's cue, the powder appeared all smirched, and of a curious rusty colour. Ewan uttered a sudden exclamation, stooped, touched the patch, and looked at his fingers. Next moment he was down by the supposed tippler's side, his arm round him. Oh, Hector, have you had a blow on the head? How came you by it? His voice was sharp with anxiety. Oh, my God, how much are you hurt? Who did it? But Hector did not answer. Instead, as he sat there, his knees suddenly gave, and he lurched forward and sideways onto his mentor. Penitent and despair for having misjudged him, Ewan straightened him out, laid him down in the heather and bog myrtle which bordered the track, brought water from the burn in his hat, 
dashed it in the young man's face, and, turning his head on one side, tried to examine the injury. He could not see much, only the hair matted with dried blood. It was even possibly the fact of its being gathered thus into a queue, and tied with a stout ribbon, which had saved him from more serious damage. Perhaps, indeed, had saved his life. The wound, great or small, was certainly not bleeding now, so it must either have been inflicted some time ago, or have been slighter than its consequences seemed to indicate. And, as Ewan bathed the recipient's face, he detected signs of reviving consciousness. After a moment, indeed, the young soldier gave a little sigh, and, still lying in Ardroy's arms, began to murmur something incoherent about stopping someone at all costs, and that he was losing time and must push on. He even made a feeble effort to rise, which Ewan easily frustrated. Oh, you cannot push on anywhere after a blow like that, he said gently. Had he not had a presentiment of something like this last night? I'll make you as comfortable as I can with my cloak, and when I come back from my errand to the head of the lock, I'm in hopes I'll have a doctor with me, and he can... Don't you know me now, Hector? For the prostrate man was saying thickly, The doctor? Do you mean Dr. Cameron? No, no, he must not be brought here. Good God, he must not come this way now, any more than Loch Dorney. Oh, don't you understand? That's what I'm trying to do. How to stop Loch Dorney. Now that damned spy has taken my papers. What's that? asked Ewan sharply. You were carrying papers and they've been taken from you? Hector rested himself a little away. Who are you? he asked suspiciously, looking up at him with the strangest eyes. Oh, another government agent. Papers. No, I have no papers. I have but come to Scotland to visit my sister, and she's married to a gentleman of these parts. Oh, you may be easy. He'll have nothing to do now. With him they named the young pretender. So how should I be carrying treasonable papers? Ewan bit his lip hard. The half-stunned brain was remembering yesterday night at Ardroy. Oh, but how could he be angry with a speaker in this plight? Moreover, there was something extremely disquieting behind his utterances. He must be patient, but quick, too, for precious time was slipping by, and he might somehow miss Dr. Kincaid in the oncoming darkness. If Hector would only recognize him, instead of staring at him in that hostile manner, with one hand plucking at the wet heather in which he lay. Hector, don't you really know me? he asked again, almost pleadingly. It's Ewan, Ewan Cameron of Ardroy, Alison's husband. His sister's name seemed, luckily, to act as a magnet to Hector's scattered wits. They fastened on it. Alison, Alison's husband. Suspicion turned to perplexity. He stared afresh. Oh, you're uncommonly like. Oh, why, it is Ardroy, he exclaimed, after a moment's further scrutiny. Yes, said Ewan, greatly relieved. It is Ardroy, and thankful to have come upon you. Now, tell me what's wrong, and why you talk of stopping MacFair of Loch Dorney. Relief was on Hector's strained face, too. He pressed his hand once or twice over his eyes, and became almost miraculously coherent. I was on my way to Ben Alder, to Clooney Macpherson. 
I fell in with a man as I went along the spear. Oh, he must have been a government spy. I could not shake him off. I could not shake him off. I had even to come out of my way with him like this, lest he should guess where I was making for. I stooped, at last, to drink of a burn, and I do not remember any more. And if Lochdorni makes for Badenoch or Lochhaber, now he'll be captured, for there was news of him in a letter I had on me, though it was mostly in cipher, and the redcoats will be on the alert. He must be warned, for he is on his way hither. He must be warned at once, or all is lost. Hector groaned, put a hand over his eyes again, and this time kept it there. Ewan sat silent a moment. What a terrible misfortune. You mentioned Archibald Cameron's name just now, he said uneasily. What of his movements? Oh, Dr. Cameron's in Noydart, answered Hector. He'll not be coming this way yet, I understand. No, tis Lochdorni, you must. And there he stopped, removed his hand, and said in a different tone, But I'm forgetting. You do not wish now to have aught to do with the prince and his plans. Oh, I never said that, protested Ardroy. I said, but no matter. I've given proofs enough of my loyalty, Hector. Oh, proofs? We have all given them, returned the younger man impatiently. Show me that I wronged you last night. You have a horse there. Ride back without a moment's delay to Glen Malley and stop Lochdordi. I'll give you directions. He looked up at his brother-in-law in a silence so dead, so devoid of any sound from the sullen water of the loch, and that the very mountains seemed to be holding their breaths to listen. "'I cannot turn back now,' said Ardroy in a slow voice. "'But when I found the doctor—' "'Ah, never think of me,' cried Hector, misunderstanding. "'I'll do well enough here for the present. "'But to save Loch Dorney, you must turn back this instant.' Surely some good angel sent you here, Ewan, to undo what I have done. Now listen, you'll find him. He clutched at Ardroy, somewhere in Glen Malley, making towards Loch Arkig. If he gets the length of the glen by dark, it's like he'll spend the night in an old tumble-down croft there is, on the side of Bain Van. You'll know it, I dare say, for I believe tis the only one there. You'll be put to it to get there in time, I fear yet you may meet him coming away. But if once he crosses the lochy, he made a despairing gesture. Oh, you'll do it, Ewan. And his unhappy eyes searched the face above him hungrily. But Ewan turned his head aside. I would go, willingly, if... Do you know why I'm on this road at all, Hector? His voice grew hoarse. My little son is very ill, I'm riding after the only doctor for miles round, and he gone up Loch Treg, I know not how far. How can I turn back to warn anyone until I've found him? Oh, then I must go, said Hector wildly, and tis I have ruined Loch Donny's plans. But I shall go so slow, and it is so far. I shall never be in time. He was struggling to his knees, only to be there for a second or two, ere he relapsed into Ewan's arms. Oh, my head! I can't stand. It swims so. Oh, God! Why did I carry that letter on me? And he burst into tears. Ewan let him weep, 
staring out over the darkening loch where some bird flew wailing like a lost spirit, and where against the desolate heights opposite he seemed to see Keithie's flushed little face. Words spoken six years ago came back to him when the speaker, himself in danger, was urging him to seek safety. Oh, God knows, my dear Ewan, I hold that neither wife, children, nor home should stand in a man's way when duty and loyalty call him. And, as you know, I have turned my back on all these. He could hear Archibald Cameron's voice as if it were yesterday. Duty and loyalty. Were they not calling now? Hector had cast himself face downwards, and the scent of the bruised bog myrtle came up strong and sweet. Ewan clenched his teeth, and then he stooped and laid a hand on his shoulder. I will turn back, he said, almost inaudibly. And perhaps the child is better now. If anyone passes, call out. It may be the doctor. You need him. His voice stuck in his throat, but he contrived to add, and send him on to Ardroy. Hector raised his face and seized his brother-in-law's arm in an almost convulsive grip. Oh, you'll go. Oh, you'll go. God bless you, Ewan. And forgive me. Forgive me. Had I not been so hasty last night. If Lochdorny be not in the croft, I suppose I'll come on him farther up the glen, said Ewan shortly. There were no words to spare for anything save the hard choice he was making. He stripped off his cloak and wrapped it round Hector, as well as Hector's own. The night, fortunately, was not setting in cold, and when he passed Inverlair, as he returned, he would make shift to send someone to fetch the stranded wayfarer to shelter. Hector hardly seemed to hear him say this, for all his being was fixed on the question of Loch Dorney and the warning, and he babbled gratitude and directions in a manner which suggested that his mind was drifting into mist once more. But as Ewan pulled round his horse and threw himself into the saddle, he could almost see Alison standing in the road to bar his return. How could he ever tell her what he had done? When he met her again, he would perhaps be the murderer of his child and hers. Soon his hoofbeats made a dwindling refrain by the dark water, and the waters of Loch Treg tossed the sound to each other as they had tossed Hector's song. Sharp, 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 said the echo, are the thorns of the white rose, and the hearth where that flower has twined itself is never a safe one. End of section three. Section four of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter four. The man with a price on his head. One. The sky was clear with morning and even decked for the sun's coming with a few rosy feathers of cloud, at once brighter and tenderer than those he leaves behind at evening. But the hollows of the hills were yet cold and drowsy after the night. The mountain grasses, tawny and speckled like the hairs on a deer hide, stood motionless. The rust of the bracken shone with moisture. And the tiny ruined croft up the brayside, behind the old thorn which had so long guarded it from ill, 
seemed to slumber even more soundly than the fern and the grasses. For the little habitation was dead. Half the moss-grown thatch had fallen in, and the young rowan-tree, which now leant smotheringly over the roof, could thrust its bright berries within, if it chose. Nonetheless, there was life inside that abandoned shell of a building, but life which, like that outside, was scarcely yet stirring. In the half of the croft which still kept its thatch, a man was lying on his back, lightly asleep. From time to time he moved a trifle, and once he opened his eyes wide, and then, passing a hand over them, stared up at the sky between the rowan boughs with a little frown, as of one who is not over-pleased to see daylight. And then he drew the cloak which covered him a little farther up, turned on his side, and thrusting a hand into the heap of dried bracken beneath his head, closed them again. The face on that makeshift pillow was that of a man in the middle forties, handsome and kindly, and not at first sight the man of one whom adventure or dubious dealings would have led to seek shelter in so comfortless a bedchamber, and whose apparent reluctance to leave it suggested that he had not, perhaps, enjoyed even that shelter very long. And presently, however, the sleeper opened his eyes again, raised his head as of listening, and then laid it back in the fern, and remained very still. Somewhere in the branches of the mountain ash above him a robin broke into its loud, sweet autumn song. But when it ceased, a slow and rather dragging footfall could be heard, and though dully, coming up the hillside, and pausing at last outside the crazy half-shut door, which was all that hid the present inmate of the ruin from the outer world. The latter, however, continued to lie without moving. Perhaps he hoped thus to escape notice. A pause, and then the broken door, catching in the weeds of the threshold, was pushed open. A tall man, his stature exaggerated by the little entry to proportions almost gigantic, stood there against the flushed sky, breathing rather fast. With one hand he leant upon the jamb, with the other he wiped the sweat from his forehead. As he stood, the light behind him, his face was not clearly discernible, nor could he, coming suddenly into this half-dark place, make out more of the man in the corner than that there was a man there. He peered forward. Oh, thank God that I've found you, he said in Gallic. Give me a sign, and I will tell you why I've come. The man under the cloak raised himself on an elbow. I give you the sign of the blackbird, he said in the same tongue. It was the old Jacobite cant name for James Edward Stewart. And what do you give me, honest man? Oh, I have no password, answered the newcomer, entering. But in exchange for the blackbird, he gave a rather weary little laugh. I give you the grouse, since it's that fowl you must emulate for a while, Lochdorny. You must lie close, and not come into Lochaber as yet. I'm come in all haste to warn you of that. An exclamation interrupted him. The man in the corner was sitting up, throwing off the cloak which had served him for a blanket. Oh, tis not Lochdorny. Lochdorny is in Noidart. You have warned the wrong man, my dear Ewan. He was on his feet now, smiling and holding out his hands in welcome. What? It's you, Archie, 
exclaimed Ewan in surprise so great that he involuntarily recoiled for an instant. Then he seized the outstretched hands with alacrity. Oh, I did not know. I thought it was Loch Dorney I was seeking. Are you disappointed, then, at the exchange? asked Dr. Cameron with a half-quizzical smile. Oh, even if you are, you are void. I am delighted to see you. Oh, disappointed? Oh, of course not. Only puzzled, answered Ewan, looking at him, indeed, with a light of pleasure on his tired face. Had I known it was you, I should have come less than... have made even more haste, he substituted. And then, is Loch Thorny here, too? No, he is in Noydart, where I was to have gone. I don't know why we laid our plans that way, for at the last moment we thought better of it, and changed places. Hence it comes that I am for Loch Haber, instead of him. But what were you saying about a grouse, and a warning? From whom are you bringing me a warning? From my young brother-in-law, Hector Grant. He's of your regiment. For Dr. Cameron was major in Lord Ogilvy's regiment in the French service, wherein Hector also held a commission. How oh, he is, but I'd no notion that he was in Scotland. But he knows that you and Loch Dorney are, and seems, unluckily, to have carried that piece of news about him in some letter, which... How oh, sit down before you tell me, dear lad, said his cousin, interrupting, for you look uncommon weary. How oh, tis true that I've no seed to offer you. Oh, yon fern will serve well enough, said Ewan, going towards the heap of bracken and letting himself fall stiffly upon it. He was weary, for he had walked all night, and in consequence his injured leg was troubling him. Dr. Cameron sat down beside him. I came on Hector, resumed Ardoy, last evening by Loch Trague's side, staggering about like a drunken man from a blow on the head, and with his pockets rifled. It seems that while making for Clooney's hiding place, he fell in with some man whom he could not shake off. A government spy, he thought afterwards. When I found him, Hector was trying himself to come to warn Loch Dorney of the loss of the letter, but that was manifestly impossible, and he implored me to take his place. <laughs> Luckily, I was mounted. On a lame horse, he added, with a shrug. So, I've come, and glad I am to be in time. Archibald Cameron was looking grave. I wonder what was in that letter and whom it was from. Oh, Hector did not tell me. He had not too many words at his command. I had enough ado at first to get him to recognize me. The letter was, I gather, mostly in cipher, which is something, but cipher can be read. And since he was so insistent that a warning should be carried, and I turned, he checked himself. Since he was so insistent, you will pay heed, Archie, will you not, and avoid crossing the lochy yet a while? Yes, indeed I will. I must not be captured if I can help it, answered Dr. Cameron simply. Oh, but, my dear Ewan, he laid a hand on his kinsman's arm, oh, do not look so anxious over it. You have succeeded in warning me, and in preventing, perhaps, a great wreckage of hopes. The prince owes you a fine debt for this, and some day he will be able to repay you. Oh, I'm already more than repaid, said the young man, looking at him with sincere affection, if I've stayed you from running into special peril. And I'm glad that twas for you, after all, that I came. 
But what of Macfair of Loch Dorney? Should one take steps to warn him also? I will not be coming this way yet, replied his cousin. We are to meet in a week, back in Glendessery, and since he is to await me there, there is no danger. And what will you do, meanwhile? Where will you bestow yourself? Oh, I'll skulk for a while here and in Glendessery, moving about. I'm become quite an old hand at that game, said Archibald Cameron cheerfully. And now, ill, the sun is coming up. Let us break our fast. I have some meal with me, and you must be hungry. Rising, he went over to the other corner of the shelter. Directly his back was turned, Ewan leant his head against the rough wall behind him, and closed his eyes, spent with the anxiety which had ridden with him to the point where the increasing lameness of his horse had forced him to abandon the beast and go on foot, and then had flitted by his side like a little wraith, taking on the darling shape of the child who was causing it. He heard Archie saying from the corner, "'And how's all with you, Ewan? Mrs. Allison and the children, are they well?' Oh, Allison as well. Oh, the children. He could get no further, for with the words it came to him that by the sunrise there was perhaps but one child at Ardroy. Archibald Cameron caught the break in his voice and turned quickly, the little bag of meal in his hand. Oh, what's wrong, Ewan? What is it? Ewan looked out of the doorway. The sun was up. A hare ran across the grass. Little Keith is very ill. I must get back home as quickly as I can. I will not stay to eat. Archie came quickly over to him, his face full of concern. I'm very ill, and yet you left home for my sake. Have your doctor there, Ewan. Ardroyd shook his head. I was on my way to fetch one yesterday, when I came upon Hector. So I could not go on. I dare say Keithy is better by now. And children so easily get fever that it may mean nothing, he added, with a rather heart-rending air of reciting as a charm, a creed in which he did not really believe. That's true, is it not? And as Dr. Cameron nodded, but gravely, Ewan tried to smile, and said, getting to his feet, Well, I'll be starting back. Oh, thank God that I was in time. And, Archie, you swear that you will be prudent. It would break my heart if you were captured. He held out his hand. His kinsman did not take it. Instead, he put both of his on the broad shoulders. Oh, I need not ask you if you are willing to run a risk for your child's sake. If you will have me under your roof, Ewan, I will come back with you and do my best for little Keith. But if I were taken at Ardroy, it would be no light matter for you, so you must weigh the question carefully. Ewan started away from him. No, no, for it's you that would be running the risk, Archie. No, I cannot accept such a sacrifice. You must go back further west. Ardroy might be searched. Oh, why should it be? You must be in fairly good repute with the authorities by now. And I would not stay long to endanger you. Oh, Ewan, Ewan, let me come to the bairn. I have not quite sunk the physician yet and the Jacobite agent. It would be wrong of me, said Ewan, wavering. Oh, I ought not. No, I will not have you. 
yet his eyes showed how much he longed to accept. Oh, you cannot prevent my coming after you, my dear boy, even if you do not take me with you, and it would certainly be more prudent if you introduced me quietly by a back door than if I presented myself at the front. Oh, which is it to be? Oh, come now, let's eat a few mouthfuls of Dramak. We'll go all the faster for it. Two. That evening there seemed to be bestowed on Loch Nahole a new and ethereal loveliness, when the hunter's moon had changed the orange of a rising to argent. Yet the two men who stood on its banks were not looking at the silvered beauty of the water, but at each other. Yes, quite sure, said the elder, who had just made his way there from the house. And the wean was, I think, on the men before I came. A trifle of treatment did the rest. He'll need a little care now for the next few days, and that is all. Oh, a beautiful bairn, Ewan. You can come back and see him now. He's sleeping finely. Oh, it's hard to believe, said Ewan in a low voice. Oh, but you have saved him, Archie. He was very ill when you got here this morning, I'm convinced. And now, he really is going to recover. Yes, please God, answered Archibald Cameron. Oh, I could not find you at first to tell you. Then I guessed, somehow, that you would be by the Lochen. I've been here all afternoon, since you turned me out of the room. Yet I don't know why I came, above all to this very spot. For I've been hating Loch Nahollera for the first time in my life. It so nearly slew him. Yet Loch Nahollera is very beautiful this evening, said his cousin, and he gave a little sigh, the sigh of the exile. How oh, those were happy days, Ewan, when I used to come here, and Lochiel, too. We've both fished in this water, and I remember Donald's catching a pike so large that you were, I believe, secretly alarmed at it. You were a small boy then, and I but two and twenty. He moved nearer to the brink. And what's that, pray, down there? Hidden treasure. Ewan came and looked. The moon also. Through the clear crystal water something gleamed and wavered. It was the Culloden broadsword hilt, cause of all these last day's happenings. <laughs> that thing, which was once a steward claymore, is really why you are here, Archie. But the more obvious cause lay asleep in the house of Ardroy, clutching one of his mother's fingers, his curls dank and tumbled, his peach-bloomed cheeks wan, dark circles under his long, unstirring lashes, but sleeping the sleep of recovery. Even his father, tiptoeing in ten minutes later, could not doubt that. Without any false shame, he knelt down by the little bed and bowed his head and his hands upon the edge. Alison, a trifle pale from the position which she was so rigidly keeping, since, not for anything, would she have withdrawn that present finger, and though it would have been quite easy, looked across at her husband kneeling there with a lovely light in her eyes and the man to whom, as they both felt, they owed this miracle, and though he disclaimed the debt, who had a brood of his own over sea, wore the air, as he gazed at the scene, of thinking that his own life would have been well risked to bring it about. 3. 
since by nine o'clock that evening and dr kincaid had not put in an appearance it could be taken for granted that he was not coming at all this made it seem doubtful whether he had seen hector by the roadside and though such an encounter was highly desirable for hector's own sake yet if the doctor had missed him it probably meant that the farmer at Inverlair had sent at once and got the injured man into shelter as he had promised ewan to do alison was naturally distressed and increasingly anxious about her brother now that her acute anxiety over keithie had subsided and her husband undertook to send a messenger early next morning to get news of the stricken adventurer but to-night nothing could be done to this end so while his wife remained by the child's side ardroy and his cousin sat together in his sanctum and ewan tried more fully to convey his gratitude but once again dr cameron would none of the thanks which he averred he had not deserved besides it was rather good he observed to be at the old trade again ewan looked thoughtfully at his kinsman as the latter leant back in his chair archibald cameron had been greatly beloved in lochaber where after his medical studies in edinburgh and paris he had settled down to doctor his brother lochiel's people poor and ignorant patients enough most of them small wonder however if he regretted that lost life quiet strenuous and happy whether he did or no it was the second time in a few hours thought ewan that he had referred to it ewan could not help thinking also what strange and dangerous activities had been the doctor's man of peace though he was since that july day in forty five when his brother the chief had sent him to borrowdale to dissuade the prince from going on with his enterprise he had become the prince's aide-de-camp had taken part in that early and unsuccessful attack on riven barracks during the march to edinburgh had been wounded at falkirk and shared lochiel's perils after culloden adding to them his own numerous and perilous journeys as go-between for him with the lost and hunted prince it was he who had conveyed the belated french gold from the sea-coast to Loch Arkig and buried it there. And then had come, as for Ewan, too, exile and anxiety about employment. After Lochiel's death, fresh cares, on behalf of his brother's young family, as well as his own. And more than one hazardous return to the shores where his life was forfeit. If Archibald Cameron had been a soldier born and bred, instead of a physician, he could not have run more risks. "'Why do you continue this dangerous work, Archie?' asked Ewan suddenly. "'There are others who could do it, who have not your family ties. "'And do you so relish it?' "'Dr. Cameron turned his head, with its haunting likeness, to Lochiel's. "'He looked as serene as usual. And "'Why do I go on with it? "'Because the Prince bade me, and I can refuse him nothing.' "'But have you seen him recently?' asked Ewan in some excitement this very month at menin in flanders he sent for me and macfair of lochdorney and gave me this commission oh, menin is that where he lives now archibald cameron shook his head oh it was but a rendezvous he does not live there oh tell me of him archie urged the younger man oh, one hears no news and he never comes oh, will he ever come again and could we do aught for him if he did but Archibald Cameron, 
for all that he had been the prince's companion on that fruitless journey to Spain after the forty-five, for all that he was devoted to him, body and soul, could tell the inquirer very little. The prince, he said, kept himself so close, changed his residence so often, and a cloud of mystery of his own devising surrounded him and his movements. It had been a joy, however, to see his face again, and even greater to be sent upon this hazardous mission by him. Yes, please God, his royal highness would come again to Scotland some day, but there was much to be done in preparation first. Ewan listened rather sadly. Too many of his questions Archie was unable to answer, and at last the questioner turned to more immediate matters. Did the prince send for anyone else save you and Loch Dorney to meet him at Menin? And there was young Glen Sheehan and the chief's son, Finlay Macfair, Fionle Rua, as they call him. Or two Macfairs. I'd not fancied you so intimate with those of that name, Archie. And nor am I, answered Archibald Cameron quickly. But one does not choose one's associates in a matter of this kind. Or you would not have chosen them, queried Ewan. Dr. Cameron made no answer. Why not? asked Archie with a tinge of uneasiness. I thought that Macfair of Loch Dorney was beyond suspicion. Of young Glensheehan, I know nothing. So is Loch Dorney beyond suspicion, answered the elder man. He got up and sought on the mantel shelf for a pine chip to light the still unlighted pipe he was holding, lit the chip at a candle, and then, without using it, threw it into the fire. But he does not think that I am, he ended dryly. Oh, Archie, what do you mean? Dr. Cameron waited a moment, looking down into the fire. You remember that Loch Dorney and I were both over in the 49, after the Loch Arche gold, and that, with Clooney's assistance, we contrived to take away quite a deal of it. Yes. Six thousand pounds of that went to Lady Lochiel and her family. Loch Dorney. He's an honest man and a bonny fighter, but the notion was put into his head by... by some third person. Loch Dorney accused me of taking the money for myself. You're jesting, man, cried Ewan in a tone of horror. Oh, it's impossible. You're making a mock of me. No, I'm not, answered his kinsman, with a composure which had only for a moment left him. He sat down again. That was why I went later to Rome, to the king, to clear myself. And after that, said Ewan, leaning forward in his chair, his eyes burning, you can come over and work side by side with Macfair of Loch Dorney, why, in your place, I could not trust my fingers near my dirk. Dr. Cameron looked at him rather sadly. Oh, it is well for you, perhaps, that you're not a conspirator, Ewan. A man finds himself treading sometimes in miry ways and slippery on that road, and he's lucky who can come through without someone calling him a blackguard. Remember, Loch Dorney is a Macfair, and our clans have so often been at variance that there's some excuse for him. And, indeed, I can put up with the Macfair's doubts of me, so long as our prince does not think that any of the gold has stuck to my fingers. And that he does not, thank God. 
Hey-ho, my poor Jean and the children would be going about at this moment in Lille with stouter shoes to their feet, if it had. He smiled rather ruefully. Loch Dorney and I sink our difference, and get on well enough for a joint purpose. At any rate, I do not have to suspect him. He's as loyal as a day. And when all's said, he has never thought me more than mercenary. And tis for the prince's sake, Ewan, he sent me, and I came. Ewan looked at him for a moment without speaking, and marvelled. And to consent to work with a man who doubted one's honesty was, in his eyes, a pitch of devotion more wonderful than was Dr. Cameron's actual return to Scotland, with a rope round his neck. He did not believe that his own pride would have permitted him to make so sharp a sacrifice. And to think that it was on Loch Dorney's account, or so I believed at the time, that I turned back yesterday, he said, in a tone which suggested that he was not likely ever to repeat the action. No, you did it for the sake of our dear prince, said his cousin instantly. And wasn't that the best motive you could have had? Ardroy did not answer. He was frowning. Is young Macfair of Glensheen in the Highlands too? No, he remains in London. He's thought to be more useful there. Now why? What does he do there? Oh, but that brings to my mind, Archie. What is this cock-and-bull story which Hector has got hold of? about a plot to kidnap the elector and his family. He called it kidnap, but I guess the term to cover something worse. He coupled it, too, with the name of Alexander Murray of Ellibank. Hector is a very indiscreet young man, said Dr. Cameron. Ewan's face clouded still more. Oh, it is true, then, not an idle tale. It is true, said Dr. Cameron, with evident reluctance, that there is such a scheme afoot. "'And I refuse to believe, or at least to approve it,' exclaimed Ewan. That, indeed, was why Hector left the house in anger. I swore that the prince, who was so set against the idea of an enemy's being taken off, could not know of it, and that you, of all men, could not possibly have a share in it. "'I've not, Ewan, and I don't approve. It is a mad scheme, and I doubt.' I hope, rather, that it will never come to the ripening. It is quite another business which has brought me to Scotland, a business that for a while yet I'll not fully open, even to you. I've no wish to hear more secrets, retorted Ardroy with a sigh. I like them little enough when I do hear them. It's ill to learn of men who serve the same master and have notions so different. Yes. I must be glad that I do not have to tread those ways, even though I live here idly, and do not for the white rose, as Hector pointed out to me the other night. He saw his cousin look at him with an expression which he could not read, save that it had sadness in it, and what seemed, too, a kind of envy. Oh, Ewan, he said, and laid his hand on Ewan's knee. When the call came in forty-five, you gave everything you had your home, your hopes of happiness, your blood. And you still have clean hands and a single heart. You bring those to the cause today. Oh, Archie, how dare you speak as if you had not the same, began the younger man quite fiercely. You... <laughs> Don't eat me, lad. God be thanked, I have. But 
as I told you, I'm not without unfriends. We'll not speak of that any more. And Ewan, how can you say that you do not for the White Rose now, when only yesternight you threw aside what might have been your child's sole chance of life in order to warn the prince's messenger? If that bonny bairn upstairs had died, I'd never have been able to look you in the face again. You have named him after poor Major Wyndham, as you said you should. I see you still have the Major's ring on your finger. You will look down at the ring with a crest not his own, which he always wore, a memento of the English enemy and friend to whom he owed it that he had not been shot, a helpless fugitive after Culloden. Yes, Keithy is named after him. How strangely enough Wyndham, in his turn, though purely English, was named for a Scot, so he once told me. Six years, Archie, and he lies sleeping there at Mora. Yet it seems but yesterday that he died. Ardroy's eyes darkened, and they were full of pain. He lies there, and I stand here because of him. I might well name Keithy after Keith Wyndham, for there had been no Keithy if Wyndham had not rushed between me and the musket that day on Bain Lee. You have never chanced upon that brute Major Guthrie again, I suppose. The sorrow went out of the young man's face and was succeeded by a very grim expression. Oh, pray that I do not, Archie, for if I do, I shall kill him. Oh, my dear Ewan, do you then resent his treatment of you as much as that? Oh, his treatment of me, exclaimed Ewan, and his eyes began to get very blue. Oh, I never think of that now. It is what he brought about for Wyndham. Had it not been for his lies and insinuations, poor Lochlan would never have taken that terrible and misguided notion into his head, and have done what he did. For it was Lachlan McMartin, Ewan's own foster-brother, who, misapprehending that part which the English officer had played in his chieftain's affairs, had fatally stabbed him just before Ewan's own escape to France, and had then thrown away his own life. A double tragedy for Ardroy. So, you charge Major Guthrie with being the real cause of Keith Wyndham's death, said his cousin. What is a serious accusation, Ewan? On what grounds do you base it? Why, I know everything now, replied Ewan. Soon after my return to Scotland, I happened to fall in with one of Guthrie's subalterns, a Lieutenant Peyton, who was in charge of the English post there was then at Glenfinnan. He recognised me, for he had been in Guthrie's camp on the Corriarick Road, and in the end I had the whole story, from which it was clear that Guthrie had talked about Wyndham's betrayal of me, false as hell, though he knew the notion to be, so openly in those days after my capture that it became the subject of gossip among his redcoats, too. And when Lachlan went prowling round the camp in the darkness, as I learned afterwards from his father that he did. He overheard that talk and believed it. It was Guthrie, no other, who put the fatal dirk in Lachlan's hand. And it is a curious thing, Archie, went on the speaker, now pacing about the room, and that, and though I have not the two sides, as some men, I have for some time felt a strange presentiment that before long I shall meet someone connected with Keith Wyndham, and that the meeting will mean much to me.
for Alison's sake and the children's, and for my own too. I hope that man is not Major Guthrie. Oh, I hope so too, returned Dr. Cameron gravely, knowing that at bottom, under so much that was gentle, patient and civilised, Ardroy kept the passionate and unforgiving temper of the Highlander. But is it not more like to be some relative of Major Wyndham's? Had he no kin? Did he not leave a wife, for instance? His cousin's eyes softened again. Oh, I knew so little of his private affairs. I never heard him mention any of his family, save his father, who died when he was a child. He looked at the ring again, at its lion's head surrounded by a fetterlock, and began to twist it on his finger. Oh, I sometimes think that Wyndham would have been amused to see me as the father of two children, especially if he had been present at my interview with Donald last Monday. His own mouth began to twitch at the remembrance. He used to laugh at me, I know, in the early days of our acquaintance, at Glenfinnan, for instance, and Kinlochiel, about the guns we buried, and he remembered it, too, when he was dying. I wish he could have seen his namesake. I expect, said Archibald Cameron, that he knows, in some fashion or other, that you do not forget him. Oh, forget him? I never forget, exclaimed Ewan and the Celt again. And that is why I pray God I do not meet the man who really has my friend's blood upon his hands. If the fates should bring you into collision, and then I hope it may at least be in fair fight, in battle, observed Dr. Cameron. <laughs> what chance is there of that? asked Ewan. Who is to lead us now? We are poor, broken and scattered, and watched to boot. When Donald is a man, perhaps. He gave a bitter sigh. But for all that I live here so tamely under the eyes of the Sassanach, I swear to you, Archie, that I'd give all the rest of my life for one year one month, of war in which to try our fortunes again, and drive them out of our glens to their own fat fields for ever. I could die happy on the banks of Esk, if I thought they'd never cross it again, and the king was come back to the land they have robbed him of. But it's a dream, and tis small profit being a dreamer, without a sword, and with no helpers but the people of dreams, or the she, perhaps, to charge beside one, in a dream. The exultation and the fierce pain, flaring up like a sudden fire in the wind, were reflected in Archibald Cameron's face also. He, too, was on his feet. Oh, Ewan, he said in an eager voice. Ewan, we may yet have an ally better than the she, if I can only prepare, as I am here to do. For that's my errand, to make ready for another blow, with that help. Ardroy was like a man transformed. Help? Whose? Her France is a thrice-broken reed. I will not tell you yet. But when the hour strikes, will you get your sword to your side again and come? Oh, come! I'd come if I'd nothing better than yon claymore hilt and the loch, and if your helper were the great sorrow himself. Oh, Archie, when? When? In the spring, perchance, if we are ready. No, you cannot help me, Ewan. Best go on living quietly here, and give no cause for suspicion. I shall hope to find my way to Creef by Michaelmas, and there I shall meet a good many folk that I must needs see, 
and after that, Loch Dorney and I can begin to work the clans in earnest. Ewan nodded. Thousands of people, both highland and lowland, met at the great annual cattle fair at Creve, and under cover of buying and selling, much other business could be transacted. Oh, God, I wish the spring were here, he cried impatiently. In his dreams that night it was come, for the birds were singing, and he had plunged into Loch Nahollera after the drowned hilt, and when he reached the surface again it was a whole shining sword that he held. But while he looked at it with joy and pride, he heard a voice telling him that he would never use it, and when he turned he saw, half behind him, a young man whom he did not know, who put out a hand and laid it on the steel, and the steel shivered into atoms at his touch. Ewan tried in wrath to seize him, but there was no one there, and he held only the fragment of a blade from that lost battle on the moor. He woke, and in an hour had forgotten his dream. End of section 4「Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.